Christmas and welcome to Wrestling with Theology. I am Pastor Doug Minton here with episode number 52, digging deeper into the story of the Exodus. Today I'm going to try to do a large chunk of the book of Exodus because really chapters 13, 14, and 15 all packed together well, along with chapter 12, but 12 was long in the first place. So I'm going to try to run through all three of these chapters as we actually have the physical crossing of the Red Sea by the children of Israel. We'll see many things going on in these chapters to combine and then how they relate later on in the Old Testament to see just what this has to say. So we're going to start with verses 1 and 2 of chapter 13 followed by 11 through 16. We'll keep 5 through 10 for, for a few minutes from now. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. And then when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and he shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are male shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So we have this consecration of the firstborn. This word consecrate comes from the Hebrew kadesh, which means to sanctify or to be holy. So we have the hymn, Holy, 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 that is from the ancient Hebrew kadosh, 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 being one of the titles for the Most High God. And then we have this idea of the firstborn. This idea has always been throughout history as a significant feature among any culture. We have the firstborn in most of the ancient laws getting a double portion of the inheritance that their fathers hand down to them. We also have the church being called the congregation of the firstborn in the book of Hebrews. Paul in Romans 8 talks about Jesus being the firstborn from the dead, the firstborn among many brothers. So the idea of the firstborn is very important to God. So he says here in Exodus, consecrate all the firstborn because the last plague in Egypt was the destruction, the killing of the firstborn. But you shall redeem them. This comes into play many times throughout the history and throughout the Bible. You can especially think of Samuel being brought to the temple, being set apart, sanctified to be a minister in the temple by his mother Hannah because he was her firstborn. Having just gone through the Christmas story, Luke points out Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, Jesus, and laid him in a manger. There is great stress on that idea of the firstborn 
because through Christ, the firstborn son of God, the rest of us in the church have the opportunity to become sons and daughters of God. In the book of Numbers, this becomes uh, said, said differently as no longer are the firstborn consecrated to God as to be the ministers of the people, but the tribe of Levi. And that's a particular case as well. In Numbers chapter 3, verse 11, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both man and beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. And later on in the chapter, after going through the duties of the Levites, it does talk about still having the firstborn being a special class among the Israelites, but not as they had been before. And again, this is an interesting case because Levi is not the firstborn son of Jacob. He's actually the third behind Reuben and Simeon. But because of the actions that Levi took in regards to the city of Shechem, he was taken out of the promise of where the Messiah would come from. So then it would be Judah, the next one in line, the fourth-born son, who would be the ancestor of the Christ. So we have this consecration of the firstborn in Exodus 13, later on the Levites in Numbers and later, that are serve as the ministers of, to the people, the ones whom God has set apart to do his work. Therefore, there have been many instances throughout history and many traditions cross denominational lines where the firstborn son is often sent to go into the ministry because they see this as part of still a good tradition to keep up from Exodus 13. Now we go back to the middle part where we talk about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That week after the celebration of the Passover where all the leaven is purged from the households and from all of the land of Israel. So we'll go back to verse 3. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be a sign to you on your hand, and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep the statute at its appointed time from year to year. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread is an annual event much like the Passover. It's a continuation of the Passover, whereas 
we now think of, okay, the big celebrations, especially Easter, we set a time of basically fasting beforehand, which we think of as the taking out of the leaven, where God puts it after the big feast. Uh, this is God's doing. We should not question his way of doing things. But we think of, okay, we fast before the feast. God says, well, feast, then fast. But there's still a feast at the end of it as well. But two other things I want to point out in this passage. First, this is a you. This is present tense. Not just for the people that first came through, but when Moses talks about it again in Deuteronomy to the generation after them, he still talks to them about this is what happened when God brought you out of Egypt. So it continues on as a memorial every year in the month of Abib. The other thing is the strong arm or the strong hand that the Lord brought the people of Israel out with. They haven't even seen it yet. They're in the process of getting to that point where that strong arm is seen as they cross the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army is wiped out. They have not even seen it yet. They just know, okay, we, we've been brought out. God killed all of them. Okay, that, that could be the strong arm. But he continues on to say, no, 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 no. We still have even stronger yet to come. So let me bring in the great picture of God's guidance, starting in verse 17. So here we are, Exodus 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day at a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So when God leads the people out of Egypt to go into the promised land, the easiest, most direct route would have been through the Philistine territories of like Gath and Ekron and Ashkelon. But that would be war right up front. And what's to keep them from turning right back around to Egypt and saying, no, no, we'd be better off here than trying to fight the battles there. So God led them by the wilderness. Uh, toward the Red Sea. But Israel went up equipped for battle. God makes this point very clear that not only had they taken all the gold and silver and all this from their Egyptian neighbors, but they went up equipped for battle so that they knew that something was going to happen. This was not going to be just a, oh, we're just going to show up and everybody's just going to say, here, take it. It's not going to be that way. And also, Moses took the bones of Joseph. They went through not only plundering the Egyptians, but they went to the grave where Pharaoh had buried Joseph 
in Genesis 50, exhumed the bones and carried them with them so that they might so that he might be buried in the same grave as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That is what Joseph had made the people swear to when he was on his deathbed. And then we have the great picture of God leading his people, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. The visible presence of God, which many of us really wish we had in our lives. That sign from God saying, okay, this is the way we ought to go. But we don't see that. It's not visible to us. Many times we look back and we see the hand of God guiding us through the difficulties and the problems that we've had in this life. And we see it in hindsight, but we don't see it in the moment. But the Israelites needed that physical, visual scene to go, Oh, God is wanting us to go this way. We can see that. We know this to be true because it's right there in front of us. And also, if you're talking about a couple of million people trying to go the same direction, you really do need a sign that is very visible. Not like you or I just trying to figure out, okay, what decision am I supposed to make in this life? The other part to all this is the geography lesson that we have. Because we have places like the people being in the land of Goshen. And archaeologists and interpreters of the Bible have never really been able to pin down, okay, this is exactly where Goshen was in Egypt. But they go from Goshen to Succoth, which is in the northeast portion of Egypt, near the Sinai Peninsula. Then we go to Etham, which runs down towards the Red Sea. And now we have them going to Pihatharia, which is near Migdal, and Baal-Zephon, and eventually on into the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula, where Mount Sinai is. So now we get into chapter 14. Now we get into chapter 14, where we have the physical crossing of the Red Sea. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihariathoth, uh, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Pazan, uh, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. The main key here is verse 4. God telling Moses, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Again. He will send his people out, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. So how does he do that? We continue on in verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihariath in front of Baal-Pazan. 
When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. God hardens Pharaoh's heart to bring out not just some of the army, but the entire army, the horses, the chariots, everything, to go after the Israelites. And then we have Israel's first complaint. You read through Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you see all kinds of complaints from the Israelites. But here's the first one. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt? Didn't we tell you when we were in Egypt to leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians. We're fine. What does Moses say? Three things. Fear not. Every messenger of the Lord, especially the angelic ones, start out everything they say, all of their messages, with the words, fear not. Then he says, stand firm. Don't let your fear show. Trust in the Lord, and you will then see the salvation of God. For these Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. David would go on later in the Psalms and that wonderfully comforting verse, Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am the Lord. This is all Israel has to do is to be still, to be silent and let God fight the battle for them. Because this is what's going to happen. This is what God has promised when they come into the promised land, is that God will go before them and wipe out their enemies before them. He starts with the Egyptians. So, of course, the people cry out to Moses. Moses cries out to God. So, in verse 15, God talks to Moses. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So Moses is told to stretch out his hand over the Red Sea, that the sea would part and the people would walk across on dry ground. And God will harden the hearts of the Egyptians to come in and pursue hotly after them. Why? I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So then the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire move from in front of the people 
hovering over the Red Sea, moved behind them, between them and the camp of the Egyptians. Throughout the night, there was the cloud and darkness, and it lit up the night. The darkness lit up the night. Amazing choice of words there, so that neither one would come near to the other. So then verse 21, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. So Moses stretches out his hand. The Red Sea divides as a strong east wind comes in to just put the water up as walls on either side. So they walk through with a wall of water on the left hand, wall of water on the right hand. I wonder what the children thought as they walked through and saw like fish swimming by at eye level. Who knows what other aquatic creatures right there that they could see and just marvel in what God had given them. But then God hardens the Egyptians again. He lifts up the cloud just a little bit. We're not sure what time, but at some point during the night, as most of the Israelites had crossed over, God lets up the cloud just a little bit so the Egyptians could see them going across, see that they needed to pursue them. So they start going in. They start going through on dry ground. And then verse 26, the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So now the Israelites have come across. God says, stretch out your hand over the sea again. The water may go back to the way it's supposed to be. So Moses does it. And the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. The Passover, the crossing of the Red Sea, is that great salvation moment of the Old Testament. Sanctifying, consecrating, kadoshing the Israelites. Paul would talk about it in 1 Corinthians 10, about being baptized into Moses. Israel's salvation comes when the morning appeared. Just as on Easter morning, salvation is seen as the dawn comes up and the women see the stone rolled away from the tomb and Jesus not there anymore. But the angels tell the women that the Lord has risen. The historical narrative concludes in verses 30 and 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. 
Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Israel's salvation came through the Lord's great power, and faith grew in the Lord and in Moses, as it does many times when you see something great and marvelous and that is beyond understanding faith grows but faith grows here in them through fear and it could be reverent fear of all the great and marvelous works it could be or it could just be fear of okay this could happen to us if we don't straighten up the same word is used for fear in both places but the children of Israel do burst into song over this they do rejoice over this and that is what chapter 15 is is that song of Moses and the children of Israel celebrating the fact that Pharaoh's army has been overthrown and portions of verses 1 through 18 are found in the Lutheran service book as hymn 925, a chant version of it uh, being given. And the song is simple. God is great. Pharaoh and his army are gone. We shall follow the Lord. So verses 1 through 18, the, the song of Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. To your people, O Lord, pass by. To the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on their own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. There is so much imagery in here to get into, but many things will come back throughout the Old Testament. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. That line is in many of the Psalms. 
Isaiah 12, many places in there, recounts what has happened. And it talks about what will happen. Looking back into verses 14 again, the people have heard they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia, the chiefs of Edom, the leaders of Moab, the inhabitants of Canaan all melt away and are scared of what happens. And we see this in Joshua chapter 2 when Israel crosses the Jordan and the spies are sent into Jericho. That is what Rahab tells the spies is that the people of Jericho melt away in front of you because of what they have heard of what happened in Egypt and what happened in the wilderness and among and along the east side of the Jordan. They melt away because of the fear of the Lord. Not reverent, worshipful fear, but terror and dread because of the greatness of your arm until your people pass by, until your people come in and say, this is our place, because this is where God has chosen for his abode, his sanctuary, and the Lord will reign forever and ever. Uh, so then, let me continue in verse 19, for when, the, for when the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. We have this over and over and over again, this repetitive thing about what, how wonderful this is, how important this is. So then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Taking again the refrain from verse 1, so that we have that thing again. Who won this battle? The Lord did. And he has triumphed gloriously. He has thrown the horse and his rider into the sea. He is the one who has done this. I'll take uh, this time to stop here as we get into some of the miracles coming in out of the other side of the Red Sea before we get into Sinai. We'll pick that up next month as we go into digging deeper starting in verse 22 of chapter 15. But the crossing of the Red Sea is such a momentous occasion that it is brought back over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament that this is what God has done for us. He brought us out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He has brought us through the Red Sea. He has given us salvation. It's exactly what he does for us in Christ. All of this is set up as a picture of what would happen with Christ in the final Passover as Jesus gives himself for the life of the world. He triumphs gloriously over the horse and rider of death and hell so that he comes out on Easter morning, risen from the dead, never to die again, and gives that gift to us as well. So as we continue to celebrate Christmas through these 12 days, I encourage you to sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, beginning with that birth in the manger of Bethlehem, all the way up through him being the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world on the cross of Calvary, in the tomb in Gethsemane, 
and now sitting and reigning next to his Father in heaven. That is all for this week. I encourage you to continue to dig deeper into the Word, and that will help you wrestle with the theology of this world, of our own sinful flesh, and of the devil as he tries to counteract us, tries to get us to not sing to the Lord, to want to take God's triumph and make it ours, as we'll see later on uh, in the book of Exodus that the Israelites would like to do. But until then, this is Pastor Doug Minton once again asking for God's richest Christmas blessings upon you as you wrestle with theology. Amen.